0: We're gonna start by opening up uh, Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to know we've got uh, lots of Bibles out in the foyer and we would love to give you one as our gift to you um, so that you can take it and open it and study it and read it on your own uh, to be diving into God's Word. So just know that those are available for you if you would like one. We're gonna jump in, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, of Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire and escaped from the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection." Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life, and others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Uh, They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. In all of these, though commended by their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, it's a little bit of a way of introduction. I wanna ask a few questions. Hopefully I'll get some good audience participation here. I wanna get a sense for what, what, what gets you guys going. Um, how many of y'all really like watching pro, like basketball, pro football, love a good Seahawks game? Like, how many of y'all really dig pro, Mainstream sports, okay, handful. Um, it is amazing to watch what some of those athletes can do—just the strength, the power, the skill, the agility. Um, how about how about those of y'all that are like me could care less about watching football, but when the CrossFit games come on each year, you're glued to the computer. Any CrossFit gamers? Anybody like just going nuts at how Matt Fraser is crushing everyone right now? So, all right, we got a few CrossFit fans. That's good. It is amazing. If you've never watched, like, football is one thing, but these guys can do everything. These guys are amazing athletes. You got to check it out. How about uh, those of y'all that get a rush from watching extreme athletes, like pro skiers? Like, I picture these guys that are carving down a knife edge in some vertical face in the Alaskan mountain range, like watching those pro skiers or pro extreme athletes. How many get a, ru- a rush out of watching those guys, right? Some extreme athlete watchers? Okay. Good mix of y'all. Uh, How about on the the other side of things, the business side, how many of y'all get a little envious and just love watching the accolades of people like um, Richard Branson or Elon Musk and just marvel at the things that these men have accomplished in their lifetime? Anybody get a rise out of that? Pretty amazing to me what those guys can do. Uh, Here's the common thread for all of these. Like all of those things that we've just talked about and touted, those all have feats of glory attached to them, right? Like it's pretty amazing what these guys have done. And as we think about the, the way that we are drawn to watch and to marvel at these glorious feats, it brings to mind a quote by Paul Tripp, which we'll put up on the screen. Paul Tripp says, admit it, you're a glory junkie. That's why you like the 360 degree between the leg slam dunk or, or the amazing hand beaded formal gown or the seven layer triple chocolate mousse cake. How many get an amen for that? It's why you're attracted to the hugeness of a mountain range or the multi-hued splendor of the sunset. You were hardwired by your creator for a glory orientation. It's inescapable. It's it's in your genes. Church, we are all wired to seek glory. Uh, The question that we're gonna wrestle with today is what glory are you seeking? We're gonna explore this idea of glory and, and where we seek it and how we seek to see glory fulfilled and as we look at that today, we're going to look at the problem, the glory problem that we face, we're going to look at the solution that God has provided to that problem, and then we're going to look at a challenge that we still have to contend with. So that's kind of in broad strokes where I'm going, just so you know, I'm not going to be walking linearly through uh, these this, this verses, we're not going to start at 32 and work our way through, but we're going to instead look at it through this lens of the glory lens and we're going to kind of break it apart in that uh, way that I just talked about, so just so you all kind of have an idea of where we're headed. Um, before I dive in and start to unpack this, let me go ahead and pray that God will bless our time. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us together today and we thank you that uh, we're able to open your word and study your word. And I pray by your grace that your Holy Spirit would stir our hearts with a readiness to hear your word, that we would be open to receive the encouragement or correction that you wanna to bring to us I pray that your grace would speak through me and that you would allow me to speak clearly so that I can convey the truth that you have written into this word, that we might know you better and live as your disciples for your glory. In your name we pray, amen. Well, if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 35, it talks about a number of people. Some of them are named and some of them are unnamed but it talks about a number of people who lived by faith. This is kind of the end. Uh, Chapter 11 is kind of known as the Hall of Faith. We've been going through the last few weeks a number of people that lived by faith. And at the tail end, we see a bunch of additional examples kind of tacked in. And so, as we look at these guys, uh, and we think about what it is to live by faith, and the fact that these guys were proclaiming God's glory, and and many of them were persecuted for it, or they were proclaiming his glory in an environment where there was a lot of persecution, we're going to pick up to start in verses 37 and 38. It says, They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts, mountains, and in dens and caves. Now I want to focus in on this phrase, of whom the world was not worthy, because this opens up the problem for us. What does that phrase mean? If we think about the world wasn't worthy and we think about what was happening, well, we see these people of faith, they were holding fast to their faith and they were bringing a message of hope and a message of correction, pointing people back to God. And the author is basically saying that the world didn't deserve to have those messengers come to them. He's saying, man, they were bringing the message and yet the world was responding and and, chastising them and sending them out into the mountains and things of that nature. like They were living under affliction because of this message of hope. And the author's saying, man, they didn't even deserve that message of hope. It was God's grace to even send it to them. Now, as I was thinking about that and reading and preparing, I thought, man, that seems really harsh. Like we think about if God's a God of love, shouldn't everyone get to hear this message of hope? How could he say the world wasn't even worthy to have the messengers bring a message of hope to them? I don't know about you, but that struck me as a little counterintuitive. It's hard to swallow that. But I think to understand that we have to really think back... um, about the context of the whole of scripture and, and what we've seen. And if you look back at the very beginning, we see that a glory exchange happened from the very beginning. Uh, God put Adam and Eve in the garden. He gave them the whole garden to cultivate and he gave them gifts and abilities to cultivate and they were supposed to cultivate the garden for the glory of God. And he gave them this one charge. He said, don't eat of the fruit in the middle of the garden. And Adam and Eve were uh, trucking along and Satan comes into the garden and he tempts them. And we see in Genesis uh, chapter three, verse five, Satan says, if you eat of the garden, surely you won't die. What will actually happen is you'll be like God. And he presented a challenge. All of a sudden, Adam and Eve had to question, is God loving and has he given us these commands for our betterment? Should we be pursuing his glory? Or did he lie to us? Is he holding out? If we were to of this fruit of the tree, we wouldn't need him anymore. We would be like God. We could chart our own path. We wouldn't have to rely on him. We wouldn't have to be obedient to him. We could do what we want. We would be our own gods. And so this glory exchange came to bear, and they had to choose. Were they going to uphold the glory of God and be obedient, or were they going to pursue their own glory and do what they wanted to do? And something significant happened when Adam and Eve chose to eat of the fruit of the tree. Um, There's a quote I'm gonna read from Dave Harvey, and just before I read it, I'll say, uh, I have a number of quotes from Dave Harvey today, and he has a great little book called Rescuing Ambition. So if you enjoy these quotes and you wanna dig deeper, write down Rescuing Ambition by Dave Harvey, and I'd encourage you to pick it up. It's a great read. But Dave says, at that moment, meaning when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, at that moment, the glorious ambition to use God's gifts for God's glory shriveled beyond recognition, And replacing it with self-confined glory. Adam and Eve were now on a quest for glory apart from God, driven by a hunger for self-exaltation. This is that glory exchange. And sadly, this is true for everyone that has lived since Adam and Eve. It was true of Israel, it's true of us, but we're gonna look at Israel through the lens of these 11 verses, chapter 11, verses 32 through the end of the chapter there. And we're gonna look through some of these examples and see how Israel really gives an example that this has been true uh, all the way through scripture. Uh, If you look at 32 through 34, it says, "'What more shall I say? "'For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, "'Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, "'who through faith conquered kingdoms, "'enforced justice, obtained promises, "'stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, "'escaped the edge of the sword. "'They were made strong out of weakness. "'They became mighty in war "'and put foreign armies to flight.'" And if you think about what's being listed, this sounds pretty amazing. I mean, this was the pro athletes, the X-game stars, the extreme, like these were the guys they marveled after because these were the guys that had walked in faith and they had seen God do amazing things through these different people. So they would have been very familiar with the accolades that were being proclaimed right then. It sounds great, but let's look at the context for what these stories were, where these stories were happening. Uh, and I'm not gonna pull apart every character because there are too many, but we'll look at three. Uh, we'll look at Gideon, Barak, and Samson. Uh, with Gideon, we see in Judges 6, uh, 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of the Midians for seven years. In Barak, the story for Barak starts, and it says, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, so the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan. Samson It says, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Um, When you see that again and again and again, despite God's miraculous displays, despite God's grace being poured out on them, they continually would walk away from the Lord and they would do what was right in their own eyes. They would do what was evil in the sight of the Lord and pursue their own glory. You realize they didn't deserve for God to continue to send them messengers of hope, and yet he did. He did and even more so for the world around them that was, uh, n- had no interest in God and was worshiping pagan gods and, and, and gave no glory to God, they didn't deserve any message of hope, and yet God would also send messengers of hope. And so God was continually reaching out to draw the world to him and to show his glory and to show people his goodness. Now, we have to be honest, um, that's not just true of people of the Old Testament, but that's true of us as well. We're all prone to seek our own glory. Uh, we all have hearts that are prone to seek our comfort, our happiness, our glory, instead of naturally wanting to worship the Lord. Uh, if you don't believe me and you're thinking, I don't know, I, I generally want to worship the Lord, I'm, I'm a good guy, uh, then I would take you to Isaiah 53 6, and it says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. What well, this is saying is, every one of us has followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. Every one of us at times seeks our own glory instead of the Lord. In essence, we've all bought the lie that we can be like God. We don't actually need him. We can do this on our own. And it's some way or another, as we think about that, we have to contend with the fact that our hearts are prone to self-glory instead of the Lord. So, so none of us deserves the grace of God. We've all continually sought our own glory. We've all turned our back on the Lord in some way or another. Uh, and so when it says the world wasn't worthy, this is what it's referring to. It was an extreme act of God's grace to continually seek, to extend a message of hope to the people that were continually seeking their own glory and turning their back on the Lord. So what's the solution if we're in such a mess and we've, if we all have hearts that are so prone to seek our own glory instead of the Lord's, what's the solution? Well, let's look at Hebrews 11, uh, verses 39 and 40. It says, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. All right, so God made a promise, and what was that promise? The promise was that we would be made perfect. That's all of the people of Old Testament that had faith, as well as all of those people since Jesus that have had faith and trusted in Jesus, were promised that we would be made perfect. Now, for those of y'all that are here for the first time today, or if you've not been here for the entire series, um, there might be some pieces that are a little bit missing for you, so let me just summarize that in Hebrews chapters 1 through 10, it goes into great depth talking about all that God has done for us to extend a message of grace and hope to us through Jesus. It talks about how God sent Jesus, and Jesus came, and he, he lived a perfect life in complete obedience, and he learned to grow and to trust the Lord, even amidst great persecution on this earth. We see that Jesus, even though he had no shame, no guilt, no sin, he willingly went to the cross and died and his blood was shed to take the full wrath of God upon himself, not because uh, he deserved God's wrath, but because we deserve God's wrath. And Jesus stood in our place taking God's wrath upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. And then he died and rose again, conquering death, and now provides the means through which we can be restored back into a right relationship with God. And so Hebrews Chapters 1 through 10 unpacks all that God has done, and then it gets to chapter 11 and says, and as a result of what God's done, here's how you should live. And so what we see through this is in those first 10 verses or first 10 chapters, it talks about how God has um, showed his glory through Christ and has shown us a promise of a future hope, an eternal hope where we can be restored and live eternally with God in the presence of his glory. If you think about that, that's the answer to the problem, right? We've sought our own glory and God's saying, hey, I can draw you back into my presence where you can experience my glory once again. Even though you were chasing after your own glory, I've made a way for you to come back so you can experience my glory, a greater glory again. Another quote from Dave Harvey. He says, "Formerly, our aspirations were the sole shrinking agents of self-exaltation, but because of Jesus, everything has changed. Having God's approval changes why we obey, aspire, and apply. Now, aspiration fuels delight. We can pursue great things for God, and it'll enhance our joy in God. We no longer live ambitious for approval, but we act ambitious because we have approval. Uh, To illustrate this, hopefully uh, this will be helpful, um, I want to share a little bit of a, a visual illustration to talk about how feeling the weight of God's glory and understanding the the impact of his redeeming grace fuels our ambition. So they're gonna flash a a slide on the screen here. Uh, I want you to ask this question, whose glory are you seeking? And picture the glory of God on one side of this uh, teeter-totter represented by the grace of Jesus dying on the cross, and on the other side would be you or your glory. Now, if you go to the next slide, if you think about it, when, when you recognize what Christ has done and you become absorbed and understand how amazing his grace is, when that consumes your focus, then your sense of self um, uh, uh, glory, your need to focus on self and worry about your own needs or wants or happiness, it diminishes because you really find the greatest joy is being wrapped up in the things of the Lord. And so as God's glory uh, increases in our life and we feel the weight of his glory our glory diminishes, rightfully so. Conversely, though, when you're living life and you're thinking about your own glory and that becomes more and more consuming, then you're thinking less and less about the glory of God and you're thinking less and less about what would honor him and worship him. And so the glory of Christ diminishes in our life as the glory of ourselves increases. So if you go to the next slide, it begs this question. Where will you invest your time, your talents, and your treasures? And I use that as just a simple way to bucket kind of all of our resources, all that we've been given in this life. Where are you gonna invest those things? Well, naturally, if you're consumed with your happiness and you're consumed with your glory, then as the weight of your glory increases, the weight of God's glory in your life will diminish, and your time, your talents, your treasures will inevitably be used to glorify you, and they will shift in your direction. Uh, Conversely, as the glory of God increases, as we recognize what he's done and as we're overwhelmed by his mercy and his grace and we receive that in our lives and we dwell upon that, then our concern for self diminishes and it's natural that our time, our talents and treasures, we would want them as an act of worship to be shifted towards God and to be invested in his glory and helping proclaim his glory. And so that's what things would begin to look like. Um, Interestingly, if you think about this, Not to take the analogy too far because it does begin to break down, Uh, but if you go back one slide, um, people often talk about when they're struggling, uh, this, uh, if you go back one slide, up one, where where the person's weight, there you go, Um, when your glory increases and you're pursuing your own joy, it seems in the short run like that's the path to happiness, But you'll see time and time again where people talk about pursuing all that they want out of life and then it just doesn't satisfy. And eventually they'll talk about feeling like they're stuck in the muck and the mire. Psalms 40 says, uh, God lifted me up out of the pit, out of the miry clay, and there's this language that when we're seeking our own glory, instead of fulfilling us like we think it would, just like Adam and Eve, instead of the lie coming true that they're just like God, what they actually found is that was a lie from the enemy, and they find themselves missing out in joy and feeling weighed down and, and stuck in the mire of life, whereas, if you'll go forward one slide, when the glory of God increases, he lifts us up out of the pit, and we actually find a greater joy there, so even though the glory of us is diminished, we find ourselves light. People often often say uh, when they let go of burdens. Uh, I was recently meeting with somebody who was deeply entrenched in sin and shame, and as he confessed it and he said, I wanna worship God, I've seen his glory in my life, I want to live for his life, he said, man, now that I've got this off, it's like a burden has been lifted off of me, I feel light. And so I think that's a very common way people refer to things because it's representing this truth. When the weight of God's glory exists, he naturally increases and the weight uh, lifts us out of the muck and the mire. So some food for thought there that hopefully gives a sense for living for God's glory. But the key thing I want you to remember is when you're living for God's glory, as his glory increases, you'll naturally want to invest time, treasures, and talents for his glory. So this raises a question. If Jesus is supposed to restore our relationship with God so that once again we would seek his glory and not our own, why do we still so often get stuck seeking our own glory day in and day out, it is so easy to get wrapped up seeking what will make us happy and to totally lose sight of living for God's glory. And you might be thinking, I generally do a good job living for God's glory, and, and maybe so. But I would argue that if we really look at how we use our time, talents, and treasures, it'll give true evidence for whose glory we're truly living after. And if you were to take a good inventory in your life, even those that are really working to follow the Lord and honor Him, you will find areas where you're still living for your glory So how do we contend with this challenge that we still tend to seek our own glory? Well, first of all, um, we have to recognize that even if we've trusted Lord as our savior, we have to contend with our sin nature. Um, Yes, God sees us as holy and redeemed and righteous, but while we live on earth, we still have a sin nature we have to contend with. So because of that sin nature, we have to choose whether we will walk in faith, and we have to choose if we're gonna live for God's glory or if we're gonna live for our own glory. Uh, as, a, as a little bit of an illustration, uh, if you think about the New Testament, there's a story of Lazarus, Jesus' friend, who had died and Jesus came to him at the tomb and Jesus called him out from the dead. He said, Lazarus, rise again. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb and, and so God, God Christ raises him from the dead. Now, Lazarus had no say in that. He was dead. It wasn't like he was partnering with Jesus in this. Like Jesus brought him from death to life. But once he was alive, he could choose whether he was going to follow Jesus and honor him or if he was going to go pursue his own interests. So there was an element of response to what God had done that he was called to. And I would say the same for us as believers. Christ in his grace has raised us from the dead. It talks about in our sins, we were dead to transgression. So he's brought us from death to life. But now we have to choose if we're going to walk with him in obedience. So let's go back and look at these different characters in Hebrews eleven thirty-two 32 through 40, and let's see what we can learn from them as to whether they lived by faith and for God's glory or not and what we can gain from those stories. First, we'll look at Gideon. You can find his story in Judges 6 through 8 and I'm just gonna hit a few highlights and I'm gonna move fairly quickly through these stories. But uh, it started saying the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord so he gave them into the hands of the Midians and the Midians would come through and pillage the Israelites and when harvests would come, they would come down and take all of their harvests. And so we start with the Lord coming to Gideon. And Gideon uh, was not courageous. He, was, he had taken his wheat and he had gone and hidden in a wine press where he could beat it because he didn't want the Midians to see him and to come take his harvest. And in Judges 6, 14 and 15, it says, "'The Lord turned to Gideon, or him, and said, "'Go in this smite of yours and save Israel "'from the hand of Midian. "'Do not I send you?' "'And Gideon says to the Lord, "'Lord, how can I save Israel? "'Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, "'and I am the least in my father's house.'" So he's saying, why would you come to me? I'm like the weakest of the weakest clan. Uh, I'm not the right guy to go lead your armies or to to help rescue Israel. So they have some back and forth and uh, Gideon finally realizes, oh my gosh, this is the Lord God whom we worship. And he basically has a few tests and once God's validated, no, I'm the Lord and I'm sending you, then he says, okay, I'll go. I'm your man because I trust you will do what you've promised. So we see this interesting exchange. The Lord in Judges 7-2, the Lord says to Gideon, The people with you, uh, Gideon had amassed an army of about 32,000. He says, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands, lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. What God was saying, I don't want Israel to take credit. You've got too many guys, so we're gonna change the numbers up a little bit. So they took it from 32,000 to 10,000. And then the Lord says to Gideon, the people are still too many. Um, They took it from 10,000 down to 300 people to go attack a vastly superior army. I always uh, think about this, and I think about when I'm wrestling with my son Gideon, I always say, boy, I'm gonna whoop you with one finger. It's like, I don't even need all of my faculties. Just one finger is all I need. And you would think, since he's only four, I wouldn't be really proud about that, but it does. Makes you feel good to whoop him (laughs) with one finger. But it's my way of saying, buddy, you got a long way to go. You're nowhere close to my glory. And that's what God's saying. He's like... He's like, God's saying, look, I'm gonna whip the Midianites, man, and I don't even need a full army. I don't need any of y'all, but I want a few witnesses, so we'll let 300 of y'all watch what I'm about to do is almost what's going on here. Now, you can imagine taking an army, whittling it down to 300, and going attacking a vastly superior army. That would look like insanity, Uh, but in this case, we know God was leading him, and we would say this was incredible faith, walking up against incredible odds, and sure enough, God destroys the Midianites, and we see in this Gideon definitely walked in faith, huge faith. We see in Judges 8, and 23, afterwards the men of Israel came to Gideon, they said, rule over us, you and your sons and your grandsons, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. My sons will not rule over you, the Lord will rule over you. Guys, this is a beautiful picture of somebody that not only lived by faith, he was living for God's glory. I mean, he could have capitalized, signed all of the pro deals right there. He was set to live as a fat cat, but he said, no, 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 this wasn't about my glory. This was always about God's glory. Now, that being said, uh, the Bible uh, is very honest, and it says in Judges eight twenty seven, Gideon made an ephod. He collected a bunch of silver and basically made a, a, a statue, and he put it in the city of Ophrah, and all of Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So despite all of his attempts to give God glory, there was an element of, well, hey, let's put up a marker to remember what happened, and then people began looking to that instead of looking to the Lord, and he kind of tripped up in his end days. So not a flawless character, but a pretty amazing example of faith and of living for God's glory. Well, then we look at Barak. In Judges 4, um, God had given Israel into the hands of Canaan because they were doing what was evil in their sight, there is Deborah, who is a prophetess and a judge, and she summons Barak and says, "Hey, um, God's calling you to go to war against Sisera. Sisera was the commander of the enemy army." And Barak responds and he says, "If you'll go with me, then I'll go. Um, but if you don't go with me, I'm not going to go." And, and as I read that, I was like, "Well, why would they put him in the hall of faith? I mean, that doesn't seem like very much faith if he's asking her to go and he doesn't trust God enough to just go at God's command." And as I read and I studied, I realized there were 10,000 Israelites, but they were going up against a vastly superior army, a war machine. The the other, uh, the Canaanites had 900 iron chariots plus all their infantry, so they were a vastly superior military. And it took great faith to march against them. Interestingly, in Judges 5, it talks about when they began to march, God dumped a deluge of rain upon them and it created mud and all the iron chariots got stuck and the Israelites were able to go down and slaughter the Canaanites. And so God, in his grace, gave them victory because they did have faith and they did walk at God's command. It was just a weak faith. He kind of wanted somebody, hey, I'll go as long as you'll hold my hand and go with me is kind of what was happening here. Now, interestingly, at the end of the, uh, the war, Sisera, the enemy commander, he fled to a family that he thought they had a, a peace with, and Jael, the, the woman who was there, she brought him into the tent, gave him milk, said, hey, we'll cover you up, we'll hide you, get under the tent carpets. Once he was under the carpet, she took a stake, drove it through the carpet, through his temple, and drilled him to the ground, killing him. And what we see is that despite Barak leading the armies and whatnot, because of his tempered faith, God handed the final victory, the taking of the enemy commander, into the hands of somebody else. It's almost like God's way of saying, hey, if you're not going to trust me, you're not going to receive the full joy of what I had purposed to do, surrendering or handing the enemy commander into your hands. I'm going to hand it to somebody else. So we see in there a good example of faith, but tempered faith, and he was living for God's glory. Well, then we go to Samson, and this is a whole different ballgame. Um, Samson is uh, in the the story of Judges if you go to Judges it's in chapters 13 through 16 and it's interesting God had a purpose to use Samson to strike the Philistines God came to Samson's mother and said you're going to have a son I've got a purpose for him set him apart here's all these things I want you to do to show that he's set apart uh, because he's going to be my man I'm going to use for these purposes so all of that sounds really good uh, except for when Samson grew up he broke all of the rules did everything for his own glory he was a train wreck Uh, He married a Philistine, which was the enemy that God wanted to strike. Uh, He ate and drank things that were forbidden to him. He was involved, after his wife died, he was involved with other women sexually. He was just a train wreck. Uh, But God continually worked despite him and continually empowered him for great feats. Uh, At one point, a lion was coming at him and the Holy Spirit rushed over him and he ripped the lion apart with his bare hands, pretty amazing feat. He killed 30 Philistines and took their wardrobes so that he could make good on a bet to some other Philistines that he had lost. That incited a bunch of rage, and so an army came against him. He ended up striking a 1,000 Philistines down with the jawbone of a donkey. And ultimately, uh, if y'all have heard the story of Samson and Delilah, right, the woman tempted him and asked, where do you get your strength? And after a few lies, he finally tells her the truth. So she cuts his hair, and the Philistines take him. He loses all of his strength, and God hands him into the hands of the Philistines. And the Philistines beat him, they gouge out his eyes, and they take him to a coliseum where they're mocking him. And so here's where I find this interesting. The culmination here, in Judges 16, 28, and 30, Samson called to the Lord, and he said, "Oh God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once. So Samson had faith. He knew it was God empowering him all along. He praised the God, empower me this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes." He is totally about his glory. After all he's been through of life, doing everything he wants, doing the things he's not supposed to do because it's pleasing in the moment, all of that falls apart and God hands them over to the Philistines and instead of repentance, he's still praying for his own glory. It wasn't let me avenge them because they've mocked your name, because they worship other gods. It was let me avenge them because they took my eyes. Like Samson was the epitome of seeking his own glory. So did he have faith? Yes. But did he seek God's glory or his own? Man, he was seeking his own glory throughout his whole life. Well, this raises the question in my mind as I was studying this. What happens when you seek your own glory instead of the glory of God? And as I was wrestling with this, I came upon another quote from Dave Harvey's book. He says, as Christians, sin doesn't touch our standing before God, but it can definitely affect our experience of God. When I lied to my dad as a kid, he didn't stop being my father, but it sure did affect our relationship. My experience of his affection changed. His love was expressed in another way, a more painful way. The hand that often blessed me converted to a hand of discipline and I felt his displeasure though I never stopped being his son. I love the way he says that in there. His love was expressed in a different way. Often when we incur discipline, we think, oh, why is the Lord being so harsh? But the truth is that is his love towards us that he would have enough grace to correct us and bring discipline to lead us back from seeking our own glory and the lies that will never fulfill us to seeking his glory. It's a great act of love of God to bring discipline upon us when we're not walking for his glory. Now, as we look at some of the remaining verses here, I love the fact that the Bible doesn't pull punches. Um, It's not selling candy canes and fairy tales. Um, There are no promises that we're covering that talk about if you walk in faith, you'll be given health, wealth, and a life of prosperity. Uh, The truth is we've been saved, God sees us as redeemed, and we have a great hope to look forward to But while we're on this earth, we might incur great suffering and the Bible is not quite about that. If you look in Hebrews 35, uh, the second part of 35 through 40, it talks about these men of faith and while the early part it said, man, they were conquering armies and avoiding the sword and ripping lions in half or whatever, now it says, but some were tortured, They refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. And that idea of rising into a better life is in contrast to the widows who received back uh, their sons from the dead. Um, Their children came back and lived an earthly life, but this is a better resurrection. They're talking about the eternal resurrection where they rose to a new life with the Lord. Um, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goat, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Church, even people of great faith often endured terrible suffering on our earth, and that's true of today. Many Christians around the world endure incredible suffering because of their faith. And we highlight this because even if you walk in great faith and even if you seek God's glory, uh, that's not a formula for all your dreams to come true. Um, That's not a formula for health, wealth, and happiness. Um, you might still endure great suffering. But the thing to be encouraged with is God's glory is of so much more value and it carries so much more weight that chasing after God's glory, serving him in his glory, that's where we'll find our greatest joy. Suffering for God's glory is a greater life than all of the happiness that the world could offer us. Um, I I would propose this question Uh, to kind of help dig at the heart, where your heart's at, are you seeking God's glory or your own? If you had everything you ever wanted in life, all of the riches, the most amazing life on earth, all the happiness you could imagine, but you didn't have Jesus, would you care? The reality is many of us think if we just had all those things, that's what would make us most happy. Uh, but if you'll remember my illustration, for those of y'all that were here a few weeks ago when I preached, um, I had taken a rope and I said, picture, picture this rope stretched all the way to the South Pole to the North Pole and picture that that is God's eternal glory. And, and then take a pen, put it in the rope and picture that's your life. That's the span of your life in light of eternity. Uh, My challenge was don't live for the speck that's your life. Live for the eternity that's God's glory. And I don't say that to diminish uh, your value. God's made us wonderfully and beautifully made. Um, But the truth is, in light of eternity, what we are experiencing here now is just a speck in light of what God has for all of eternity. And so it's a charge for us to lift our sights and to realize our life is but a vapor. It's gonna be gone in no time. It's just a flicker. So raise your sights, live for God's glory. And that's where All the happiness of the world might seem amazing, but when you put it in light of eternity and what it would be like to live in hell, separated from God for eternity, versus living in his glorious presence for eternity, that is a much greater eternity to live for. So how does this apply? Well, for those of you that are Christians, I wanna challenge you with Ephesians 4.1. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul's saying a few things. When he says, live in a manner worthy to to which you're called, he's saying, first and foremost, get out of the stands. This isn't a spectator sport. This isn't like watching pro athletes and extreme athletes where you'll never be in to hold a candle to what they do. Uh, He's saying, no, Christianity is not a spectator sport. Get in a game. God has purposes and he wants to work through you. From the weakest of the weak, Like Gideon, he has great purposes and he will work through you to accomplish what he wants to do. So he's saying, get out of the stands. You're getting put in the game. God's called you to action. He's also saying, walk in faith. And he's saying, seek God's glory. Another quote from Dave Harvey says, to love glory is to pursue glory. And if we love the glory that comes from God, it translates into a lifelong, passionate, zealous quest. In other words, godly ambition, And now my prayer is that we would all live with a deep, driving, godly ambition. So let me ask, are you like Gideon? Are you like Barak? Are you like Samson? Are you like Gideon? You have great faith and you're seeking God's glory. Uh, I have to say, I have seen a number of people in this church that live like Gideon. Uh, Man, you are diving into life you are facing the challenges that it brings with tremendous faith and you are so quick to give glory to God when he's working in and through you and it is an amazing testimony of God's grace. It is beautiful to see and I encourage those of you that are living that way to keep living that way. Some of you are like Barack. You have faith but it's shaky. You find yourselves only willing to follow God if you've got training wheels around you and people kind of holding your hand and saying that they'll back you up if, if things fall apart. Um, if that's you and your faith is tempted at best, I would just challenge you, confess that and repent to that. Pray that God would grow your faith and begin walking more boldly. Begin taking steps to trust the Lord and walk in faith. And if we were to be honest, some of you are living like Samson. You have faith and you've seen God's power at work. You'll give full testimony to God and his amazing power and grace. But you're presuming upon his grace. You just trust he'll keep bailing you out and that it's okay for you to keep chasing your own glory. Uh, Like Samson, you're seeking the pleasures of this world for your own gratification. Uh, Perhaps you're letting alcohol or food rule your life. You're enslaved to these things and you don't even care. You think it's fine because it's serving your pleasure. Perhaps you're pursuing sexual sin and you're entrenched in all sorts of stuff but you don't feel like the consequences are that significant so it's worth the payoff that you're getting. Perhaps some of you are pursuing things that you know aren't honoring God but because you enjoy the payoff, you're continually seeking your own glory instead of the Lord's and if that's you, I just want to challenge you, repent. Don't presume upon the grace of God. Um, I would just challenge you, really confess that, put it at the Lord's feet and turn and begin seeking his glory and living in obedience to him because like Samson, if you continue in that way, you are begging for the hand of discipline to come down upon you. God loves you and in his love, at some point he will bring a hand of discipline upon you and you don't want to live under the hand of discipline. So church, some of you are living out a rich faith, and I have heard and seen so many examples of people living out a rich faith, and I wanna encourage you to continue in that, and it is such a beautiful evidence of God's grace. For others, evidence is lacking, and perhaps the examples I just shared are a little difficult for you to identify yourself with, so let me share that through a different lens. Think about it uh, from serving. Uh, some of you, when opportunities are shared and you hear that there's a need to serve here in the church, you are excited because you see it as an invitation that you're being invited to be a part of the work God is doing. And with joy, you jump in. You're you're showing up regularly to serve behind the scenes, or maybe you are a regular contributor in kids ministry, or with our students or the production team. And I want to thank you. It is such a beautiful picture when you're coming here early or staying late or serving. It is such a beautiful picture that you're living for God's glory, not your own. Um, some of you, though, you grumble. When a request goes out, you grumble. Man, I don't want to give up more time. Sunday's my day off. Why do I have to show up early? And that heart of grumbling would give evidence that you're seeking your glory, not God's. Instead of realizing you're being invited into the work God's doing, you're thinking about what you're sacrificing from your time. And, and if that's you, I just want to challenge you to just confess that and repent of that. You're being a glory thief. God's calling you to get out of the stands and be a part of the work that he's doing, and <laughs> I find the stands analogy funny in this building compared to old, because you're actually in the stands. So you can literally get out of the stands and get involved in what's going on. Um, And and church, just know that when we give these calls of conviction, it's not because we need more help. It's not because we need your manpower to run on. It's because we believe that's where your greatest joy will be found when you're taking part in the work that God's doing. Or think about it from the lens of mission. Are you investing the gifts that God's given you to glorify him in your place of work Or are you using your gifts just to advance your own reputation? How would it look for you to glorify God in your place of work over seeking your own ambition? Uh, Some of you I have discussions with and I'm so encouraged because I see that you're prayerfully thinking about how you can use your work or your hobbies and in all of the relationships God's put in your life, you're thinking about how you could be intentional to create opportunities to share the gospel with him and it is such an evidence of God's grace that you're willing to to be intentional and to walk in the potential uh, uh, risk or danger of how people might respond, but you're willing to do that because you want people to meet Jesus. Others of you, if you were to be honest, you don't wanna get involved in other people's lives because it's messy. It takes time. Uh, You're afraid they may not respond well to your attempts to share the gospel or or on the other side, you're afraid they might respond well and then all of a sudden, like a new baby, they're wanting to learn and grow and they're turning to you to mentor them and you don't wanna have to deal with that hassle in your life. And so for whatever reason, some of you are creating boundaries because you don't want to be a part of what God's doing in other people's lives. And if that's you, again, I would call you to confess that and to repent of that Quit being a glory thief. Realize God wants to transform lives and he wants to do it through you. He's called you to be an ambassador so that he can bring his message of hope to others through you. So I would call you to get in the game and walk in faith and seek God's glory and be looking for those opportunities where God's at work. One last lens to look through. Think about it from community group. Uh, Some of you are hosting and you're there every week because it's your home and they're all showing up, so you gotta be there. And you're with joy opening your home and blessing others or perhaps some of you are leading and every week you're pouring into families as they come and it is such a beautiful picture of you willingly sacrificing time and energy to encourage and invest in others. And some of you, you're in community groups and God's given you gifts where you're there to encourage and you're not just attending and taking, but you're intentionally investing and encouraging the lives of the other people and you're spurring them on in their faith and y'all are discipling one another and that is such a a beautiful picture of living for God's glory. However, there are some of you, I would challenge, that maybe God's given gifts and abilities where you actually um, would be capable, by God's grace, to step out and maybe he's even tugged at your heart a little bit to step out and to go plan a new group There are new people coming to the church all the time and and they want somewhere to plug in so they too can be discipled. And candidly, right now, out of all 22 community groups, we have capacity for like four to six people. Like we're at capacity. And some of you have the capabilities. You could plant a new group and you could create space where new people coming into the church could easily plug in and be loved and discipled. Uh, But you don't want to because it's fun to be in a group that's loving and serving you. And you know it'll be uncomfortable to take on that responsibility yourself. And for those of y'all, that God's given those gifts and he's even tugged at your heart a little bit, but you keep turning your back on it because you don't wanna deal with the hassle, you'd rather be in a group that's just gonna love you well, I wanna challenge you, repent, confess that you're being a glory thief, avail yourself to the work God's doing and recognize that even if it's hard, even if it's challenging, there is great joy in seeing God work through you and the gifts he's given you to bless others and to build up the body of Christ in love. Now some of you today I know are are not Christians. You're here and you're wrestling uh, through these things and you might be wondering, well, how does this apply to you? And I would say it applies to you very directly because the truth is if you're not walking and acknowledging the Lord God as your Lord and Savior, then you are fully living as a glory thief. You are seeking your own glory. You are basically saying you can be your own God. You don't need the Lord in your life. And I would challenge you that if that is the case, I invite you to make today the day that you would confess that that you would repent of that and you would quit being a glory thief and you would surrender your life and you'd say, Lord, I recognize that your glory is far greater than mine. I wanna live for your glory, not my own. And I would invite you to accept Jesus as your savior today. Romans 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So please, church, receive his glorious grace that's given through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, Receive that forgiveness that he's given, forgiving you for being a glory thief and drawing you back into his own glory instead. Um, People of Sound City, God is doing a lot of amazing things here. And we rejoice in all that we're seeing, but I believe he wants to do a lot more. And the truth is all of us have some degree of glory thieving that we still have to contend with. So I pray that we'd all walk out of here really praying that God would show us where he's wanting to grow us, where we need to live by greater faith and where we need to live for his glory because we're still seeking our own. Now as we chew on that, we're gonna take a time of response and worship. Um, the band will be coming up here in a few moments to lead music, but we're gonna start with giving. And so the financial stewards are up top. They're gonna be passing buckets down. Uh, For those of y'all that are visiting, please know there's no expectation or obligation to give. This is an act of worship for those that call this church home. And it's our way of giving glory to God, saying, Lord, we recognize everything we have is actually a gift from you. And so we thank the Lord for that and we give back to him so that we can help perpetuate the work of the ministry that he's doing. In addition to giving, uh, I wanna give you some discussion questions, stuff that you can chew on and take with you. One discussion question here would be, where's the Holy Spirit exposing to you that your time, treasure, and talents are being used to pursue your own glory instead of God's? And I challenge you, be specific with that. In what ways is the Holy Spirit convicting you to surrender your glory and to seek God's glory? And then third, in what ways is the Holy Spirit convicting you to get in the game and be more involved in the work God's doing? With each of these, I'd encourage you to be very specific and then hopefully you'll get to talk through that with your community groups. Then there's a few prayer points. Uh, Number one, I'd encourage you to pray that God would expose where you're living as a glory thief and seeking your own glory over his. Pray and confess your sinful pursuits of your glory over God's glory. Pray that God would show you where he's at work and where he's inviting you to join him so that he can work through you. I pray that God would give you the faith to trust Him and then walk in obedience. As you chew on those, the financial stewards will begin passing communion here in a moment uh, as soon as they're ready. Uh, when they pass out the communion elements, I'd ask you to hold on to those until after I've prayed. That way, everyone can take communion together. Um, I would also encourage, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'd ask you to just let this pass by. This is an act of worship for those that have received Jesus' grace and believe in Jesus. It's a way that we are reminded and proclaim our faith in him by remembering that his body was broken and his blood was shed, his blood was shed. And so if you're not a believer, just ask that you let this pass by. This is something for those of us that um, profess faith in, in Christ. And as we prepare for communion, I wanna read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three 23 through 28. And as soon as y'all are ready, y'all can go ahead and pass. It says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup. And after supper, he said, this is the cup. It's the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So as they continue to pass, um, I'm gonna go ahead and pray um, after I'm done praying, the, began, the, the band will begin to lead us in worship. Uh, you're welcome to sit. If you need some time to just pray before you take communion, you're welcome to do that. But once you're done taking communion, we'd ask that you stand and you join us in seeing, uh, singing worship to the Lord. So let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word of encouragement and the word of challenge that was brought to us today. I pray that all of us would be stirred with an understanding of how great your glory is and that it would take its proper place and the weightiness in our life that it should and that we would begin to live by faith for your glory in increasing measure day by day and week by week. I pray that we would walk out into this world in a way that would proclaim your glory for all the world to see that, that many people would meet you and come to know you as Lord and Savior and worship you, which is where their greatest joy will be found. In your name we pray, amen.